Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Thursday, April 7th, 2011, and our special guest today or tonight, depending on where you are, is Bernadine Porter. Bernadine, thanks so much for being here. Uh, it's my pleasure, and you're hearing a clock, <laughs> clock chime in the background. That's sort of my uh, entree to when I go on any stage, even virtually. It is so funny. Thanks so much for being here. Some of my normal slides, those of you who are used to seeing them, are not going to be here because Bernard Jean's slides were uh, graphic intensive enough that I, I couldn't fit more in. So we're going to shift sort of quickly to the where you're listening from slide. Uh, so look to the left of the slide now, and you should see a wand with a red star at the end. Go ahead and click on that, and then click on the map. And some of you have been doing this in the chat already, but you can shout out in the chat where you're listening from. I know we've got um, Bill listening from the Philippines. And it does look like we have someone in uh, the UK and New Zealand as well. Always very fun. And Bernard Jean in Orlando with a great clock in whatever room that she's in. So uh, because of because of lack of slides, you can't see our upcoming guests. Um, but next week we have some fun um, authors coming to speak to us. Uh, the first is Carl Speak, who wrote a book called Be Your Own Brand. Very good book on sort of authentic. Uh, branding, and uh, we'll get a chance to talk to him as part of our series on the long tail and uh, both students and educators becoming specialists and things. Then Jerry Mintz is going to talk about education revolution. Uh, the week after that, David Shank on his book, The Genius and All of Us, which just came out in paperback, and uh, Barry Schwartz on his uh, thoughtful book called The Paradox of Choice. Um, anyway, there's lots more, so if you go to futureofeducation.com, you can see those upcoming interviews. As well, you can see the, all of the recordings of interviews, both in MP3 format and in the full Illuminate version. Um, and we did speak a few weeks ago uh, to Frederick Hess um, on school reform, Bill Mathis on the same topic, Mitch Resnick from MIT, uh, Don Smith-Meyer on the Sophia.org uh, sharing project, much like Khan Academy, but crowdsourced. So lots of fun recordings up there at futureofeducation.com. Sure hope that uh, there's something of interest to you there. OK, so Bern Jane, I have really waited for this show for a long time. And I'm going to tell you sort of briefly why. So over the course of a couple of years of doing these interviews, uh, there has, you know, I try and be impartial, and I try and make sure that we bring people on from different perspectives. But increasingly, my own personal sense is that uh, educational systems work well where there's where a local culture has engaged around a desire to uh, produce an educational environment for their students, um, and that's led to you know, several discussions that we've had here on the show about how do you help um, facilitate that kind of activity locally. And and Tony Schwartz, no, Tony Wagner came out from Harvard and actually talked to us about communities in which they had done that, and the degree to which they often came up with a vision very similar to what we would call sort of the 21st century schools or students' vision, 
but because it was done locally, there was engagement that had been built around it. So even though the outcome was the same, uh, it was the engagement factor. So we've thought a lot about this and, and have had a Utopia on to talk about it. And the concept of future search has continued to stick with me because of a book that I read on the topic years ago for business. And uh, so you're going to kind of discuss a little bit, I think, tonight about the education culture. But I'm hoping that you'll, and I know you will, go into sort of the methodology of future search. Um, and, and before you do, I want to make one quick connection. It seems like so much of Web 2.0 is based around providing voice to those who have previously been uh, the consumer or not involved in the narrative of traditional institutions. So what Web 2.0 often does, it seems to me, is to provide a platform for that voice. Is there a parallel between that and the kind of bottom-up coalition or, or uh, constituent building that takes place in an activity like a future search? You know, uh, Steve, that, that's a really good question. I, I think for all of us who have great passion for what we want our schools to be for students, we're always looking for what are those strategies that we can successfully engage with. And I do feel that there's, there's an energy field inside of groups, organizations. Um, there's also a phenomenon called consensual reality. And I know that's a fancy word, but what it means is we all agree to what is possible and what is impossible, kind of like the elephant that was little and got tied up by a rope. and then when it grew up, it could certainly have escaped, but it had agreed to the agreement that it couldn't get out. And so when I think of the tools um, and we see the historic events that have been happening, you're really talking about breaking that consensual reality of somewhere along the line we've agreed to what's possible and not possible. Future searches are strategies in which we tap into that. We begin to frame, reframe, regardless of the realities today, what are the news stories we want to tell? And that we as a single person who maybe comes into a school organization or even a team of small teachers who are making those models of news stories, but that we all agree that it's time to start living inside of a news story. So I think what happens with the Web 2.0 tools and, and some of those is they break the sort of, oh, on stage they call it the fourth wall. They break the fourth wall of the story that's being told and saying, wait a minute, this is not all the story that there is. There's, we can create another kind of story. We don't have to be stuck in this one. And you tap into that energy field very pervasively. Terrific. Well, let's have you go ahead and start. Uh, the way we're going to do this is that Berna Jean is going to um, uh, go through her formal presentation. We'll have some break moments, both for uh, activities with the group and for Q&A. And then our goal is to leave a good 20 minutes at the end for a fuller and richer Q&A. So uh, I turn the slides over to you, Bernadine. Thank you. And you may see me skipping some of these slides because I want to stay on point and be sure we have plenty of time at the end. But um, I, I think all of us feel like we have a generation of students who are going to literally inherit the earth and we're rechecking our assumptions about what, is, what do they have to know. And we've been talking about it. And Moss Deaf, who's a rapper, says we've got to stop talking about it and we have to start being about it. So I think part of this is to keep people in this conversation about what are we pretending not to know. And even as the facts come to us that life is changing, we seem to be holding on to, but 
this is the structure of school and I don't know how to impact it. The real bottom line is being able to answer this question. Do you think that school, as we are shaping it now, is really preparing those kids for their future, not our imagined future because we won't be having to live in it necessarily. So um, there's a lot of wonderful speakers about the future is coming, the future is coming, and I feel like the system, not individuals, kind of hit that snooze button. So if we take this question and we take it to our communities in a meeting, I would have to say at the heart of this is the conversation of do we really want to be changing or not, and we as an organization or a field of educators. And I can remember being in a meeting with Peter Senge, um, who leads the fifth discipline at um, Harvard and or MIT, excuse me. It's MIT, isn't it, Steve? I shouldn't do that because I think I'm a I don't know. guy. But I think him as a universal man because he's sort of everywhere, but he had a team of us together looking at this and Edward Demings came in and he's the man that caused all that trouble in Japan around going from junkyards to this phenomenal electronic empire. And then when he got that done, he came back to the United States and then people were interested in him. But they asked this question to him, how long is it going to take to change schools? And I'd like to hear just a little bit in the chat box while we're here. Because when they asked this of Demings, I think everybody was surprised. So thank you, Jackie. Oh, there you are, of course. Um, Jackie's always the resource woman. So in the chat box, when people say to you, how long is it going to take to change schools? We know there's a gap. We know there are places that we have to go to reorganize. So what do you think? And I'm talking to our participants here. Okay, so we've been about 10 years on the topic of 50 years, decades, does anybody, there we go, Barbara, I was waiting for the never, so, because we're working day in, day in, and day out, and you think, are we ever going to get there? But in fact, what Deming said is it's not going to take any time at all. And everybody looked at me like, does this man know schools? He lived inside the organization, and what Peggy's saying there is, what he says, not going to take any time at all, going to take a long time to decide. And part of the future model is to create an awakeness and to create a commitment to that decision. And it doesn't happen with a pull-out technology group or a pull-out planning group. It really needs to be pervasive stakeholders who are in the same place and time. And it does need to be face-to-face -face in terms of working there. But what it is is a commitment that says, I am clueless about how we're going to get there, but I'm utterly committed to we have to get there, no is the wrong answer. And those of you who know anything about me, I use the expression of Daun Jechino, which is a Portuguese phrase that says no is the wrong answer. It's the same one we make to our children when they're born. I have no idea how I'm going to afford college or take care of you in the way that I want, but no is the wrong answer, we will figure it out. And that's that deep commitment that future searches make. And I see technology come on the stage with ideas of We've got a plane, a super jet, but are we going to live the runway that we call school and go to new places, or are we just going to use the plane to go round and round? So Steve, why don't you call on the person? Uh, is that you? No, and, um, that's me. I want, to, I want to make a comment. So I'm really curious please about do. this. Please uh, do. No problem. So uh, Deming, uh, Senge, um, a lot of the business authors that we are sort of turning to, that I'm very comfortable turning to on these topics, 
if we if we use them as kind of an example, what's intriguing to me is that in a lot of ways they've never become the primary story of business. So uh, Dan Pink writes about you know we know that that tying compensation to knowledge work doesn't work, and yet that's never been the main understanding of businesses or the main way businesses operate. So I have a question, which is, is it reasonable to even expect that education as a whole will change? Or do we just hope to influence kind of a secondary culture, which is a little bit deeper thinking, in the same way that we can't expect business to change as a whole, but you have a good subset of organizations that run their businesses differently? Well, I think what happens in businesses is if they don't change as a whole, they're out of business. And, and I mean that at really some profound level. These are strategies of doing that. And I, I've got a wiki site that I pointed people to on their handout. It's called IimagineWikiSpaces.com. But um, uh, there's a gentleman there called Real Time Strategic Change in which he brings five to two thousand, 500 to 2,000 people in the room. And they don't just vision, they create an action plan in the same moment in time, and the speed and depth is very big. So it's, it's really whole group engagement and how you activate people based on common ground. Um, and I do believe that businesses who are not able to be change hardy, flexible, living systems like Margaret Wheatley said, will see their demise. Um, so it isn't that business models are what we want to follow in schools, but because I think we're not in the same kind of business, but they do have strategies for organizing the energies of the systems and bringing dialogue and concerted agendas together into common ground. So um, it, is, it isn't that we're a business model, but they actually do use a lot of change management strategies. And they do it because they either do it or they die. So That's I'm going to push back. I'm going to push. I'm going to push back just a little here because I think this is really worth drilling down. And I don't think it detracts in any way from the message. But if I were to go to most of the local businesses in my area, many of them don't use these kinds of uh, engagement at all levels of their company for employees. In fact, many of them are, you know, I mean, Apple is highly secretive. Um, you know, there are a lot of different ways that businesses operate. And I guess my, my sort of deeper question is um, not necessarily to bring education in business into the education environment, but to, but to think about how some of this deep best thought in business doesn't actually translate to how all businesses run. And so is it realistic to think that this good deep thought that we've seen in, in schools, and especially in the Coalition for Essential Schools or Sudbury or Big Picture Schools, that we've, we've had a lot of schools that have implemented sort of very progressive democratic strategies, but they never become the main story. And trying to make this the main story of education, is that an effort that's sort of destined to fail because it's too complex? Let's leave that I as an open question. Uh, yeah, and here comes my clock again. So I guess it does every 15 minutes, which might be a good thing. Um, I, I will just say to you that the future search lends itself to things that I deeply value and believe in. One, we are always smarter. We, that means the community, smarter than the problem if we gather ourselves together. Two, that when we create new stories that we do want to live in, I think the stories become possible. And you can look at our space program and saying we, just, we declared against all odds and not knowing how it was going to be possible that we were going to make it happen. And so 
I agree to that. I do not agree that every business strategy locks steps and follows us in terms of how we manage our schools or what we use. But what's at the heart of future search is saying we are going to come together. This is our community, our children's futures, and we're going to do whatever it takes. Even with our differences of how we do that, we're going to find common ground. There's a huge amount of research, successful research, that actually comes from quantum physics around what happens when dialogue comes to very snarly problems. Is dialogue lifts up all the private agendas and enables people to concertedly work towards what's important. And because of that, yes, businesses have been using future searches. In fact, one of the resources I leave on my website is the art of the long view in which a um, oil company, uh, Shell Oil, uh, looked at what were things that may crash their business, and they designed these scenarios. They were the only oil business that not only survived the embargo, but they thrived because they were prepared for activating the story they needed to use in order to take care of themselves rather than be surprised. So you know, the, the whole field of scenario building is really based on some science things, tapping into the wisdom of the crowd, being able to say, look, this is our community, our kids, and together we are actually going to figure this out and make sense of it for our kids. Uh, Michael Fullen speaks a great deal about how communities that have common purpose actually can't be pushed around by external forces. And I think we even have a couple of states here in the United States that I see happening as well. So I really do believe that very large systems can be influenced by some processes. And it's not a one-night stand that solves things. And absolutely, if students aren't 25 to 30% of the audience in future searching, you're not going to have what you need. So Steve, go ahead and make a comment or question. No, no, I'm going to let you keep going. And uh, we'll keep coming back to this. I, I'm in complete agreement. Um, but at the same time, I know that you know, what Deming did was miraculous in Japan, and yet, say, the American auto industry, it took a financial crisis to get there. So I've, as much as I love what you're doing and, and love this as a strategy, uh, I'm wondering what the limits are. But we'll get there when we talk later. So yeah. keep going. And, and by the way, uh, there's a wonderful quote that says, some people change when they see the light, and others have to wait for the lightning strike. You know, I have to say, it's just like some people don't want to look out on the horizon. They want to hang on to the bubble they're living in. And there's a lot of pain in hanging on a long, long time. But let's, uh, what I'd like to do is just to check with people on their vision. And the first thing I'm going to say is, would you say to your people in the community or when you're on the road and sharing like tonight, yes or no, do you feel that your school has a power vision? That means it has a lot of energy. So a green so check Stephen, for yes. So Stephen, we have to put the poll up. Yep, at the bottom of your participant window, you'd click on a green check to indicate yes, or a red X to indicate no. Oh, that's the heat. Right, Jackie. I say the lightning strikes. Like you want <laughs> OK, so we're kind of looking. Sometimes so there people was a have, green. The words. have the words. The green is yes, that they have a power vision, and the, uh, X, the red X is no. Right, so I published before that one green check went up, but you can see predominantly no's. OK. So people want to do planning, and they want to know how do you get those people to change. But quite frankly, and I'm going to speak to the visioning process here a little bit, if there is a vision out there, I don't think we have to pull these, but I'm just going to reference these here. 
The next question I'll say is how pervasive is the ownership? Because whoever owns the, the situation or the journey or the destination owns the solutions, owns the problem solving. And so you want to be, when, when I take a vision to a community uh, that may be in place, we do this little temperature reading on 1 to 10. You need to be a 7 or above for there to be enough energy in the system to overcome the potholes, the problems, the stuck places, the effort to change. So there really needs to be a pervasive ownership. And if it's only owned by a few people, even if it is the DOE, it's not going to be enough to change the system. And then the next question that I would ask is, how would you rank your zest, passion, or urgency? And we often have a lot of visions or goals where there's not urgency on there. And what this means is, Daunje Chino, get out of my way. I, we have to make this happen. And again, Susan Jaffers, who has the book Take This Job and Love It, says, if you're not at a 7 or above when you finish whatever the futuring is that you do, then there's not going to be enough holding power to drive people through that. And I think this is true for kids' goals in life and personal goals. And you can say, yeah, I, I want to be a doctor. But if it doesn't have a lot of urgency and passions, then you're not going to do all the hard labor to get there. So basically what you're looking at is this first conversation. And future searches can uh, really make this happen. And I'm going to skip down to talking about, let me just see what's in front of this. <clears throat> Be ever watchful of who owns this situation. I was just in a school district where they walked around the building coding the technology uses. And because they didn't want to bother the principals who were very busy, they just went in themselves. And even though they collected the data, the principals, one, didn't get to learn up, and two, never really believed the data. So we want to be careful that whatever we do, we are disturbing the system and we're getting people focused. So let's step into the future search model, which you may have had some modifications on. But there's actually a website, and I've left it on the handout. And Steve can help direct you towards that if you need, or I will leave my website out there. So I will just give you the basics of this. And this is Margaret Wheatley talking about this is a system. And if you take individual visions and you link them to group visioning process, then you have that collective vision. But what you do now, because people have been involved in a concerted experience, you have changes in behavior in individuals, which changes the organization. And this is sort of a reinforcing loop. And I'm going to tell you about a story. We did uh, community meetings based on the future model in every one of the 906 school districts in Illinois. Uh, I designed their tech planning process, and we committed to this community-based meeting. And, and many of them did it out of compliance. But you know, we said, you still need to hold this meeting. You need to have 30% of the kids there, et cetera, et cetera. So they were going through the process of doing the future search thing. And they kind of got to the end of it and said, OK, we're done for the evening. It was kind of like a blind date. Like, we're done. Thank you very much. I'll walk you to the door. And somebody stood up and said, wait a minute. This is too important. I feel how important this is. We're not leaving here until we figure this out. And I'm not leaving and waiting for the State Department to give us money, we have to start Monday. And you know, we had so many examples like that where people's passion buttons were pushed, and they got it, and they wanted to contribute. And in another town, they had this Windows guy said, I'm going to contribute my windows. Well, he literally was a Windows guy, like doors and construction. And they thought, well, what we really need is AT&T. And he goes, 
Three times a year, they sell his seconds, and they raise more money per student income for technology than anywhere. He said, I've been here 20 years, and nobody's ever asked me to participate. And I want to be part of this dream coming true. So don't underestimate the time that it takes to really gather the people in the room, honor them, and know that you've created an energy field to walk on. So even if you're not trained to go through future searches tonight, I'm going to say you, it is an amazing, powerful thing, and you don't do it as a one-night stand. So go ahead, whoever's wanting to talk, not a problem. That's, that's me. So Bernadine, do you do the timeline exercise from future searches? Do you do that kind of a collective past uh, envisioning? Not in an abbreviated event. It depends on who's in the room and needs to understand. But my meetings usually start with a little bit of understanding that the world is changing. And what we found is without anybody reading anything or studying before they come, 80 to 85% of the future trends that are coming at us are in the room already. And then I move into what's our best hopes and worst fears. And then from there, we look at writing scenarios. So I'm able actually to, to abbreviate the three-day process into something useful and yet allows us to bring a goodly amount of stakeholders in the room. A traditional future search says 60 people strategically selected. And um, when, when we did these in Denver Public Schools, we did five Saturdays of four to 500 people a Saturday in the room in five regions in Denver Public Schools. And what was amazing with that group is from Saturday to Saturday, the storyline started to be the same. The dreams started to be the same. The priorities started to be the same. And it really helped Denver Public Schools get a footing on getting what they needed to do out to the public for a referendum. So I do larger groups. I probably don't do that timeline, some of the formal things there. But some of that is I've had to modify it for our community-based planning to engage more stakeholders and the time. So I want to ask quickly as well, are there schools that you're aware of that have done a good job of incorporating these principles into their sort of normal course of operations where you, where you see that what they do sort of year by year incorporates these same values? Not very many of them. And I don't say I know lots of schools, but a few of them that do it, do it as an interesting activity. And you might as well not do this. It's like a one-night stand. You wake the community up. You have them dream for very one night and say, thank you very much for playing that game. Now we can get our grant money. So you have to be very careful that you're sincere in welcoming them in. Uh, you need to know that, not you need to know. We watch the metaphors of organization. And the primary metaphor of most schools is war. You know, uh, homework wars, in the trenches, getting the troops together. And that metaphor organizes the, the schools to say outsiders are dangerous. We have to be careful of them. And nobody intends that to be true. But when you carry a metaphor in an organization, uh, one of the things I was trained a long time ago when I worked for the Quest telephone communications and stuff is if you really wanted to change an organization, you would change its metaphors. And then you'd never have to have action plans. So you know, like our writing labs are often medics, you know, like where we're fixing up sick writing papers. You know. So I will just tell you that our schools have war metaphors. And inviting the community in is a very shaky thing. It's not where we go first. And sometimes we launch things like social media tools without bringing 
the community along and engaging them that, and then we're then we're paying for it with this backlash of blank screens and fear-based, you know, results that come from that because it seems like a lot of work to engage the community on what should be our business. Yes, Larry. That, then, then the, it's not sincere. It's like an activity you do because, oh yeah, they're the parents. So I would say if you really have an attitude of inviting your stakeholders in, knowing that we really serve the community, and you have a respectful process, not a filibustering process, for deeply listening, even people who leave the room with an idea that they would rather have had in charge will be supporting what the group decides. And that's common ground. That's where consensus comes in. And it's very powerful to have that experience. We had Illinois uh, superintendents who would call me at 1 o'clock in the morning before their event and say, I am literally shaking. I could tell you I'm going to cry, but I'm not going to cry. I think I'm going to fall apart. They were so tense about having a community meeting because they'd never had any big positive experiences. And then they would call me back and say, you know what, we've changed the way we do business. I don't know why we fought with it for so long. We have pizza parties where parents come in and help us do this and that. So I will just say this idea that the stakeholders come in and be part of the solution, the brainstorming, and the dreaming, and then own it with you is what the future search is all about. It's an attitude. So we run into this problem every interview, which is we start running out of time. So I want you to keep going. And while you do so, I'm going to put a couple of Amazon links, one to the Future Search newest version of the book, and then the second one to a book that's actually about future searches in schools. So, but, but let's have you keep going. Yes, and at, at my I Imagine Wiki spaces, I have a tab on scenarios, future searching, and also using this whole thing about students making vision videos 20 years from now as if they were already in the future. And I started talking about story fields, but when you have a story, the brain does not know the difference between future and past. And when you have a story that's powerful and you really connect to, it actually rewires the brain and can rewire the culture. Because culture is just the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are. And if we're willing to tell new stories and say, this is the story we're going to live in, and we're going to do whatever it takes to get there, not only for the culture of the school, but for the culture of our kids to step into. So you're going to see some screens about that. Um, this is what I say around technology. We have opportunity to create new cultures, but so far I don't think we've decided that we want anything new. We want it decorating the, the runway that we're on. So we have these power airplanes, and somebody said, I didn't know we were going anywhere new. And they said, you're not going anywhere new. Just take the lesson you have, and we're going to decorate it up. And I just want to close with this thought before we go into there. I am not about leaving the runway. I am about flying to new planets. It is time to take our kids to magical places. It is time to take all the things we know and understand and say, let's do whatever it takes to get there. And we don't have enough people who have really decided that yet. And quite frankly, I know we've got a lot of pressure on us externally. There's a consensual reality about those tests and what we can and can't do. And somebody needs to step up, stand up and say, like Whoopi Goldberg does in her Sisters Act, she goes, he says, no, 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 what part did you understand? She goes, well, no is the wrong answer. And to me, we're at a time, we were born for this generation, Steve. We were born to be the crossover generation of recreating what's possible. And the people who are leading out technology have to stop being satisfied with pablum. 
They have to stop being satisfied with small little things like the teacher was willing to touch it. So I really want us to start saying, we're not about crossing the runway and glad you got on the plane. We're about to take off and we need all of you with us because we're what's going to deliver this generation of kids to their own greatness. And I do feel passionate about this. And every day that we're satisfied with 8% of our teachers using data projectors or 2% of the teachers using this is a day in which we, we have given in to consensual reality, which is not real. So I will kind of a group flight, I like that. Strap in, it's going to be a bumpy ride. So I'm going to take questions, and I know all of you out here that have joined us, I know number, many of you, Bernie Dodge, lots of people here work so hard to activate these dreams and have created wonderful things that can actually be part of the dream, and then you hit this system wall. So I'm ready for questions and any conversation that the audience wants to add into this. I would like to know if anybody's been part of the future search, though. Good. So you can either ask a question or answer that particular question in the chat, or you can use the hand with the green up arrow to raise your hand to ask a question. Um, while we're waiting for a question to come in, I will start. Um, and um, you know, I get the impression from the Future Search book that there's this sense that this, uh, this, that the process reflects sort of deeper ways in which we operate, almost sort of tribal ways that people are used to operating. And I've wondered if sort of the advent of mass communication like television and other things have created a culture in which we were largely sort of passive. And that again, with Web 2.0, we're, we're coming into a life and our children and students are coming into lives where their expectations for being much more active are going to be higher. So uh, does future search kind of hold a larger sort of philosophical pattern for us as we think about how we engage in all of the communities we're involved in, education or otherwise? Is that a question to me? <laughs> well, it was a question to you, yes. I mean, I, it feels like there are deeper human patterns at work here that are larger than just education. So are there, are there ways in which we can help teach this as a, as a way of interacting with others? Um, not just to help education, but also to help our students know how to use this pattern of, of behavior in their own communities. I, you know, I don't know. Every day I try to be a little more modern and a little smarter. <laughs> I, I guess what I think is that the industrial model, the metaphor that we're a mechanical word, is insidious. And Margaret Wheatley speaks to this very well. When I think about a change-hardy culture, I think about how collaborative is the culture? What is the relationship structure? And you know, when you think about that, the industrial model has really put us in these little itty-bitty boxes. And even if it weren't for the internet, I wouldn't be able to connect with Bernie or Peggy or Jackie or any of these people. So I, I know that gives us an opportunity to connect. Uh, but I guess I think it's more insidious than we understand that there's there's a kind of place that you stand and a politeness about not causing trouble, although I didn't learn that rule, I guess, um, very much. So I, I actually think that's the issue. And Margaret Wheatley speaks to that best in her leadership in the new science. And relationships is where the living organism and the self-managing, self-refreshing um, uh, 
organizational change comes from. And if you have that change hardy culture, collaboration, if you have that in place, you're going to find learning curves and change curves being deep and, and have a lot of speed to them. But you think about the average school and how, how, how much collaboration really goes inside of those organizations. And I don't see it in very many places, even though there are places that try. So I guess I didn't express it very well, but my thought was okay. as, we, as we go through these kind of future search processes, can we see the outcome both as a, a benefit to the community and engagement around education, but also modeling for the students how you move forward in the future to, to engage your communities and be a part of decision making? Meaning is it, I'm, I'm thinking that the process could be very generative. In, in fact, in running the future search process, you're, you are modeling a great way to move forward in, in many areas in life. And, and the answer is yes. I mean, and again, we say that collaboration is one of the 21st century skills, and yet I meet lots of teachers who are powerful, amazing, but they haven't figured out what the collaboration part is because they don't, it's something you have to rehearse and practice. And how are you going to help your kids be collaborative if you are not sure what that looks like? So. What I, I, it was a small story, but what I have gone is like from Illinois, three to four years later, I'll have superintendents call me back and say, we changed the way we did business. One, one community had some senior citizens on their tech planning committee because they had to have outsiders there. So this one superintendent called me about two years later and he goes, oh, thanks a lot. You know how I didn't like doing this planning. We just wanted to go shopping for our tech stuff and you made us do this community thing and I thought you were blah, 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 but I want you to know what happened today. The senior citizens showed up today at our school board meeting and demanded that we update the equipment in the schools because they had this huge project going and the speed wasn't good enough. Because as part of our community-based planning, there had to be a goal that served the community. And I laughed my head off because when have you seen senior citizens show up in force at a school board meeting and demand that money be spent on something? So that's what I think is that sort of uh, flowing forward thing that comes. We had another school who held this compliance meeting and somehow the mayor was busy that night. They fired him the next week. And he goes, what do you mean that our schools weren't important enough for you to come to this meeting? You'll have to get on down the road and we'll be getting a new mayor for our town. So I think when people catch the passion and they get that they have a dream, everybody wants to be part of that. And they really do want to try to figure this out. And if you get discouraged and you start believing reality, it'll be very confining. So I try not to hang on to reality too much, and I mean that quite literally. They're really, I know that our communities, when you tap into them, will support us in anything that we really need for our kids, even against all political regulations. <laughs> so would you, would you go through sort of quickly again the steps of the actual future search, the way that you do it? Mm -hmm. Let me just see here. I'm going to find my slides that fit that. Let me see. Uh, well, let me just say what, yes, I will try to. We set the tone of just saying the future is coming, and it doesn't take very much. It's about a 15-minute thing. And then we spend quite a bit of time, and this is a consensus building process, on what are your worst fears for kids and learning? And then what are your best hopes? And then at the end of that, we build, that's called a wave packet. And a wave packet is the potential for any situation to deliver your fears or to deliver your hopes 
but it can't happen without you considerably focusing on what are the actions we need to take to have even more of our best hopes. So they kind of put out their strategies on that. Then we ask them to take their best hopes and get in groups of three to four mixed with students and they're to write a narrative story. So this taps into the narrative intelligence and the idea that we're going to create a story and through story instead of coming up with buzzwords like 21st century skills or you know we want all kids to be collaborative, they're to tell the day in the life of a student, one student, names and details, 12, 7 to 12 years from now, what will their day be like? And it's a one pager. It needs to be present tense, which is very important to the brain. You need to write it as if that story were already true and happening. Then what we did, and you can see in your handout in the middle of the screen, you've got a student with a microphone. We read out our stories, and story after story, and we filled our brains and hearts with what are these new stories that we want to tell. And then the group came to agreement on what were the key qualities that we heard in every story. And I, I have done these in Cairo, Egypt, and I've done these in South America, and I've done these in Asia, and I've done them in rural and cities and Las Vegas. And it is amazing how every community has similar dreams that they're holding on to. And then later on, we call them 21st century skills. But because they're activated there and they heard these qualities, then what we did is take those qualities and shape a vision statement. Yes, I have lots of them recorded. And in shaping that vision statement, then somehow that vision statement had scenes and scenarios. And a number of years ago, ISTE did this, that when they rolled out their goals, they rolled out a little short story of what this goal would look like when it was real. Um, because people can't see the future. It's a blank screen. You, those details become really important for them to live into them. So at the end of this then, what we do is we ask people to say, what is your commitment of what you're going to do between here and wherever that you're going to help make this vision become a reality and turn into you know, classroom practices? So whether you were a fireman, a teacher, a parent, a student, we ask for personal commitment, which is really kind of mission statements, and let them do self-organizing groups on what they were going to take on to make this story be possible. But I think the multimedia thing that I would now add in is that when you have sound and images and music and these details, they feel real. So you look at AT&T and Apple and other groups who roll out imagined products, vaporware, what they do is they get the, the story field ready for a new product. And Commander-in-Chief was an example of a storyline about a woman being president. And I think it affected the, the field of influence so that we could even begin to imagine Hillary Clinton running, for example. So again, this isn't a play game of saying, let's write a new story. Wasn't that fun? You are about causing lots of trouble, lots of energy. And you're creating a future that's so detailed as to be imagined possible, and people want to commit to that. So what's the time frame for you? I mean, I know a traditional future search is three days. Are you doing this in a single session? Yes, I am. And mostly because I want the, it, I felt that the trade-off was, and I don't know how Marvin Weisbord or, or even Margaret would feel about, Maggie would feel about it, but the trade-off is we're, we're never going to get enough stakeholders from a school system probably together for three to four days. Uh, I could never negotiate that. So at first I was leery, but we did these throughout Illinois and we caused a lot of trouble. And by that I mean whipped up passion, no is the wrong answer. 
we took the lowest economic schools in Illinois and we did this process. And I said, don't you understand we're poor? Don't you understand we can't make this happen? And I said, I understand it, that you can't make it happen, but you have to make it happen anyway because these are your kids. And that's why I told the sort of backstories of, of people saying, okay, I'm not leaving here tonight until we make this real. And I think we underestimate the power of story to really influence our imaginations and our belief that we could make something, and the buzzwords are not going to do it. So it feels to me as though by condensing in that way that you're sort of playing a disruptive role, which is you're saying, I'm, I'm going to give you an experience that's so emotionally sort of liberating and interesting that you're not going to want to leave without taking action, and it's going to change sort of your perceptions. From a, from a traditional future search, I have the feeling that it's sort of more organized in terms of the outcome. Do you participate in the, the processing of outcomes for, for clients when you do this? Actually, uh, a, a formalized future search, you do not stay wedded to any of the outcomes. As the ideas go to the wall, you talk about voting with your feet. Whatever the ideas are, we say to anybody, what's on the wall that you want to make real? Out of all the ideas and concepts that have been generated, go to that place, take it off the wall, and find a corner in anyone who wants to join that. We get all nervous because maybe there were six or seven other outcomes that you wanted to have happen. But here's the bottom line. You can assign people to them, but if they don't have passion for making it happen, it wouldn't be happening anyway. So they actually take a kind of laissez-faire attitude at the end of an event that says, out of all the things that's been on the table, where's your commitment? Vote with your feet. And if it's two things or three things or one thing, then that's all that was going to happen anyway. So also in a traditional future search, if I'm reading it correctly, you really have to make sure that uh, people from all levels of the organization are there. Do you find that you still get the same disruptive power even if you don't have the people in charge there? No, like a good wedding, 90% of the work happens before the event. You want to, what we did in Denver was, I'll just tell you what we did there. Every building principal had to identify parents, students, and a community member, that, um, two of them, and then they had to open it up to other people who wanted to come. So we did a strategic planning of engagement. But then we looked at whether our city members, our, our mayor, where were they coming to the events. So I would just say, in general, we're looking at um, if you do not have the players in the room, then it doesn't matter if you fill the room. And we often have events in schools where we do a cattle call. Going to have a meeting Monday night. Hope you can come. Well, what you do is wine and dine, cajole, harass, bribe, make cookies. But you say, you are in the influence web. And there is such a thing as, as diagnosing the relationships in the influence web and making sure that they're, that they're there. So um, yes, they have to be in the room, or or you're missing that. I actually had an experience here in Florida. In fact, I'm down here working with this organization this week, where we did a, a data collection, and then we had sort of a follow-up meeting of two days in which we say, now that we have the data, so what? 
and we put it on the table, and every one of them started backing out. We had the school board there, we had the union there, principals, students, teachers, and they started telling me, oh, we couldn't possibly make big decisions like that. And I said, well, who's missing from the room? Well, no one was missing. Well, if you can't make the decisions, who can? And there was just this silence, and I said, okay, here's a petition. You're signing your signature here that says, I am powerless to make these decisions for kids. If you sign this, you can go out for a two-day lunch. But I want you to publicly stand up and say, you're powerless. And though, of course, nobody did that, and we ended up coming up with consensus on what are the two or three strategies that they did want to activate in the district, and they did go ahead and, and start to do you know, those pieces. But their first position was that they were powerless. And I said, well, I'm going to call your bluff on that, so tell me that. So could you build a narrative for us that envisions how this kind of activity would take place all over the country? Oh, <laughs> I think I'm back to my opening slides, and, and I know that sounds like I'm sloughing you off, so I guess if I could, if this is a compliance activity, if people haven't really decided that we need to change, and I say people in the community, you know, I've got people standing there saying, yes, I know kids are bored, yes, I know we're not doing them right, I know that we're not delivering them to the futures, but what can I do? So they haven't really decided to go there. but. If we could find a way to, we did mandate, I guess that's how, we didn't mandate, but in Illinois, if you didn't do the community meeting, you couldn't get the funds. So to me, I feel like we really need to concertedly say we want to help principals and superintendents know how to facilitate these kinds of meetings. We need to uh, expect that meeting with your community and setting your visions and goals is part of how you're going to get funded. I think a lot of things would happen. I, I don't know how scalable it is because it does take facilitation. But we actually scripted this, trained seven facilitators in Illinois, and they went out into all of the schools, including like Chicago, which has 600 buildings. Chicago made every building do their own community meeting for this. And would it have been the same if Bernadine was standing there or Margaret Wheatley or Marvin Weisberg? Probably not, but we did move forward. What didn't happen is they saw it as an activity to get their money, and then some of them went back to business as usual. But you're really talking about how do you get a field of people who are facilitating change and not, I don't know, getting test preparations ready. And I'll be really flippant in saying, if we're in the testing industry and that's what our business is now, which nobody in this room thinks that, but we're probably doing the right things. If we're holding dreams for our kids and we are urgent that they need to happen, then we have to start calling different kinds of meetings. And they can be small or they can be large. But anytime kids are at the forefront, Dan, uh, yes, it depends on the topic. A lot of those three-day events, Dan, were community meetings to restructure the businesses in the community, for example. But if you have kids' voices significantly at the table, it's hard to ignore that this meeting is about them and not about adults. So that's probably one of the most successful things we achieved in both Denver and Illinois, which is my large-scale future search examples, is that kids were honored, brought in, and had strong voices. Uh, and it's their future. <laughs> so I don't know why they're not at the table helping us uh, have this conversation. So you asked oh. me about scaling up. I think we could do it if it were really something more than an activity and people wanted to get the skills, because I did script these community meetings and lots of people 
got some training from me and went out and I thought did did the job right? Oh, scaling up, like ask, okay. Well, scaling up meaning that you would have the skills for every school district to make this be a part of how they do business. Uh, and Dan, I saw your comment about new superintendent, new vision. Well, vision de jure is not going to get us into the future, you know. Um, so I think it would be about creating a vision that's community held and then the new leader would have to vibrate in that new story. So I'm not sure I actually meant scaling up as much as I was sort okay. of asking the question, is there a vision that um, of wider adoption? And in that vision of wider adoption, how did we get there? Like um, waiting for Superman okay. Sorry. Or, 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 well, that's okay. No, waiting for Superman or um, Race to Nowhere. People are all over the country are holding meetings around those movies, so sort of voluntarily choosing to do that. Is there a clue there to us? Um, is there a train-the-trainer model for future searches for schools, meaning uh, are there ways in which people could be prepared? Are there certain kind of moments in time in communities where people are looking for this, and so you can kind of um, prepare people to be ready? At that time, you know, in a in a vision of ten years from now, where more and more communities are doing this, how did we get there? I think you gave great examples of signals from the universe that that parents and communities really want to take a hard look at at this conversation. I don't know if we've gained enough momentum. Uh, I know they held those meetings in Boulder, Colorado. But they didn't do any follow-up, and I talked to several parents who just left frustrated. All they were were aware of the problem, and they didn't see where they could be part of the solution. So it would be quite wonderful if you wanted to cause trouble, is to have like Young Zhao's book read as a book reading, and then have follow-up future search type events, or race to nowhere, or wherever it is that you use that as a sort of wake-up call to let's talk. But Again, I'm going to tell you, I find schools as a system, not individuals, pretty locked out about how much they're going territory they're actually going to give their communities to have a say in this. And some of it out of negative experiences, I guess, and some of it thinking, well, this is our job and you know we should be deciding. But we're back to the deciding again, and I've been waiting. My future search training was probably 17 years ago, and I thought, this is the lever. If we would just gather the people together and have these conversations, we could begin to make it happen. And then somehow we, it, Peter Singer got frustrated. He just said, I don't think systems thinking and schools belong together, and I'm just not going to put any energy into it. So on your website, do you have um, sort of an actual outline of a session? If somebody wanted to kind of follow your model, is it detailed in any any specific spot? Um, I I I could put an agenda meeting out there. Uh, I'd want them to know the purpose and intentions, and that would be sort of writing my own little handbook on it. Like there's there's a reason why you do best hopes worst fears, and it's connected to science, and it's connected to a process of people acknowledging what's in the room. Um, so. You know, I, I I can put certainly the community agenda out there. Not a problem. 
just thinking about what are the what are the things that we could do as a community that would facilitate as much as possible sort of a broader understanding of these processes and how to do them when a community is ready. I'm also interested, have you ever seen a community do this without the buy-in of the formal education system? Meaning, have you ever seen people voluntarily get together, hold this kind of an activity, and, and kind of decide they're going to impact education even if they don't have buy-in from the formal structures? I have not. And I'm wondering for my group, because there's a lot of smart people here, can you imagine that that would be something we could activate and be uh, successful with? So Sylvia says homeschoolers. Chartered schools, for sure, are going through kind of brainstorming process to figure out what they're doing. And I noticed that even though the results are mixed, most of my friends who are involved in chartered schools are actively engaged in talking about education, but they don't, just don't have a model for doing it that's as productive as a future search. Right. Um, I'm open to ideas. I'm not saying I'm the one that has all the ideas. I like, I see it. I see it being something that can really move us forward in ways that we underestimate. Uh, again, I believe that people are magic. And part of bringing communities together is that we actually do have common ground. And while we have our differences, we have that. And if we would only act on our common ground, we would make lots more happen for schools and lots more happen for our communities. Um, I just think our diversity, people get nervous about what are you going to do with that guy who jumps up and says, I hate kids, or I mean something you know, galactic like that. And you need a facilitator who has such a soft touch that you don't know that they're really managing the environment, that they stay in the background, but they can be there in a split second if there's even an insinuation that disrespect is going to come into the room. And so the processes are really designed to be very constructive. And I'd love to find a way to train people who are ready to do that. But we're going to have to get permission and a willingness that says, would our community be willing to even hold these kind of events in connection, like you said, with the movie, like Race to Nowhere. Or, um, and I love Young Zhao's book. I can't help it. He really says the truth about, and the point of testing is. You know, the idea that we have a talent-oriented curriculum is what showed up in my future searches 20 years ago, that people imagine that kids found passion in school and love of learning, and that their gifts became part of who they were in the world. And, um, it would be fun to be part of any place, anywhere, that says, let's take that journey. I don't so know I'm, if schools are in enough pain yet. <laughs> well, so again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to echo my comments at the, from the very beginning, which is I've really looked forward to talking to you about this. Because if, if we're right about the impact of Web 2.0 in Egypt and in Wisconsin and in California, where constituent groups are clamoring for voice in the narratives of institutions, then I think as a community we have to be prepared to have good models to deal with that. So as Web 2.0 technologies allow for more and more voice of constituent groups, as people are showing waiting for Superman or Race to Nowhere, I think our challenge is to be ready and prepared to, to, to figure out how to leverage what you've learned and know about these kinds of positive community activities because there's going to be a need. I'd be happy to be part of creating sample follow-up scripts. That's what I would be calling it a script. 
um, that people could engage in, and maybe a bank facilitators that if they felt like there was uh, a lot of tension in their community that it would be helpful. Um, oh no, Rick didn't say that. Okay, I'll just be sad for a minute. <laughs> okay, um, I know Rick. I just, I, you know what? Parent, <laughs> I can't go there because we don't have time. Uh, there isn't anything I don't think we couldn't happen. And are there days that get discouraged? There's a number of people in here that do. So I, that's not what I want. I want. This is a quote I hang on to. It actually goes in the back of our t-shirts for the I Imagine project that we're doing, uh, which is kids imagining using their gifts in the world for good. And you'll see some of that on my I Imagine wiki sites. But there are days I get discouraged. But this holds steady for me. It's like, okay, I can't fix everybody, but I can add whatever drop I can add. And the world needs all of us, wherever we're standing, to make that small difference. And if it doesn't seem enough, it's all we can give anyway. But if people like Steve can have us gather together and say, well, here's one or two other places we can add our drop of good, I would be very happy to be part of that. So if there was a way to activate agendas or scripts that would go along with Race to Nowhere or something like that so communities knew that we can't just say there's a problem, we actually have to be part of the solution, then I think more things would happen. I really do. So the clock is telling us that we've reached our hour. I tell yes. you what I would love. I would love a train the trainer session. I would love, you know, whether you do this for charge or you decide to do it as a community effort, I would love kind of a train the trainer model where you would talk us through an activity or an event like this so some number of us are prepared and, and kind of know what's involved in holding these kinds of activities. I think that would be really fun. And I'm not, you know, I'm going to kind of leave that to you because it may or may not fit with your personal professional goals at this moment. But that would seem to me to be a very nice kind of next step. Well. You know, I'd be, I don't know, I mean, lots of us show up at ISTE, so if there was a reason why you wanted to have a sample script, I'd be happy to contribute my time. I've already booked my airline's ticket, but um, that's a place where we gather. Uh, they, they are facilitation skills. It's not just operating the script and maybe experiencing that. But I, I agree, you know, and it's, it's something I don't do directly anymore because people don't seem to want to have these kind of meetings <laughs> as much as I would like them to have. But could we I'm do it at the you, end? Could we do it at the end of EduBloggerCon? Could we have a what three or four-hour that, block? Steve? That's the Saturday before ISTE. Uh, so, like, so like, we would use afternoon and evening. Well, so EduBloggerCon typically goes till four or four thirty, and so it would probably need to be say from five to eight. But could we do some kind of a, either train the trainer, or could we actually do could we do the process ourselves? Oh, I'm typing. <laughs> uh, I teach a workshop in the afternoon on Saturday, but I would really be happy. These are power people in this group. I I recognize that. So if we can. Uh, have any experiences that would be useful and add something to their work if people are interested, I'd be happy to show up and, and be part of that. No problem, Steve. Well, so let's talk about it because we're in Philadelphia. I just, I just love Philadelphia for all of its history and for the idea of sort of rewriting history. 
uh, you know, the Constitutional Convention, just the Liberty Bell, just the whole idea that there's an opportunity to do something differently. So we'll go ahead and close for tonight. Uh, I, I'm not going to put you in a position where we're making commitments, but I'll follow up with you by email. And if, in fact, we decide that that's an activity that could be done, either as a train the trainer or having us actually do a visioning process together as a group, uh, it might be a really fun thing to do that evening. Um, and and uh, I'll send an email, and if it turns out to, turns out we do it, I'll send a larger email out to the Classroom 2.0 and Future of Education groups as well. Uh, Bernadine, thank you so much. I want to ask this group: Would they rather? Would they like to walk through doing it so they can feel it from the inside? Is that something they would like? Or, okay. All right. Then I'll work with Steve to frame what might be possible, and if we can make it happen, then I would get the pleasure of seeing all of you in person at a huge event, and that would be my personal paycheck. Okay. Of course, we love to move to action. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Again, uh, we've been talking with Bernadine Porter about future search and sort of re-envisioning education. Uh, really appreciate the, your, Bernadine, your willingness to be flexible tonight and take my questions throughout. Um, if, if you're interested, again, we've put the links in the chat for Bernadine's site as well. The document, the PDF that you get automatically by joining this session has those links. And uh, we'll look forward to future conversations. Bernadine, thank you. Thanks, everybody, for coming. So I'll turn the recording good night. off. Good night. OK. Have a good night, Bernadine. Thank you. And Steve, I'll stay if people want to have a little bit of dialogue here. No problem. I'll stay for just a few minutes. Otherwise, I'll see people in Philadelphia. So if we were imagining what we would do in Philadelphia, if people want to walk through the process, what would we be visioning? We could be as specific as, say, social media tools, or I mean, we could be specific about that. You know, I have a th I, I have a piece that I do that says, if I were in charge of the world of learning, and it's actually a process we're doing in Vermont right now, where we're asking students and teachers uh, as we create this virtual school model in Vermont, and the virtual school model is going to be 3D environments plus plus. So. We just set up a generic, if you could be in charge of the world, world of learning, what would it look like? So that's pretty good. It's wide open, but I think you know, it would be hard to imagine this without things like social media tools and tools like Illuminate being part of that. But we could do it around that. Could we be as specific as what we can do to change the world of learning? Does that come out of? Do, 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 are those the walkaway outcomes that come out of it? Yes, that's what 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 you assume is that your picture and mine and Jackie and Debbie's and John's picture of the world of learning would all look the same. So what you do is you slow that down and you say, what would it look like? Now, what are the common qualities? Now, the closing question is, what action are we going to take, or what actions do we need to take to make this start happening in our local places? So whatever, I think that sounds, that sounds lovely. And I, what, part of what I like about it is that we will actually then have gone through the process together. So there's this opportunity for you to kind of uh, recursively or openly kind of talk to us about what's actually happening as we're doing it. 
Yeah. And I'll, I'll I can do that. I can um, I can do the debriefing. So um, that works for me, and I can imagine it happening with a lot of ease and fun. What time would it have to start for you to work? When does the blogging finish? Well, Edge Blogger Con typically goes till four or five, but we could schedule it in such a way as that there could be certain activities at Edge Blogger Con that allowed us to leave earlier if we needed to. Uh, did you say you're teaching a workshop that day? Yes. Do you know when you finish? Well, whenever it finishes, I don't know if it's four or four thirty. It's the afternoon ISTE workshop. So it might be kind of fun to, to do this in such a way as that we actually had dinner somewhere or dinner provided. Do you think so that we're um, not having to to take off time to go to dinner? Yeah, we're going to need to plan around dinner, and I would also say um, I'm going to put the prompt in here that I use, and it's it's on my website. We need a room to work, and dinner needs to be at the side. It's not something we can do around a dinner table, so it needs to be like not finger food, like in as in munchies, but things that it wouldn't require us to sit down. Pizza. So and and so then that would mean maybe people having a little bit of break and coming together like at five. And I would just say from five to say eight thirty, given that we have food time and we want to debrief. So anything that would be kind of I don't care if people are sitting around the circle eating, you know, but we we will be starting in a circle for a lot of reasons and we need a little space for us to work and you might want to decide how many people you want there. Um, and and we just organize around the room space and your outcome. But uh, I think it would be exciting to have a core group of people really experience it and find a way to take some of this back home. What would be the lowest number of people that would make it worthwhile? I think 12, I think and 12 worthwhile and meaning worthwhile at meaning some point, some point less, less people actually create the field of energy that you want or need. And how many would be the most that we could do it with? Oh, 30, 35. And if you had a lot of passion, we could reconsider that. But what we wouldn't want is people to come eat, stay a little bit. I don't want them grazing through. I mean, they need to really want to be there for the whole process because if they're not seeing the closing, then they're not going to get the point. Okay, so if maybe we have a sign up, and there's a there's some level of commitment um, associated with it, and it's you know it's not just like the regular edge blogger con where anybody can come and they can stay for as long as they want, but this is a specific activity. It starts at 5:30 or 5 to goes to 8:30, and you actually have to sign up. To participate. Yeah, and fee I'm agreeing dinner. about the fee. If if there's a fee, maybe there's a fee and it's returned somehow. It's not really about collecting the money, but having skin in the game that you made a commitment to come versus that sounds good, that sounds good, and all of a sudden I have a lot of things to go to. So, um, yeah. So, and, and the fee is really more about them having a little skin in the game and not just signing up for bunches of things. And then I'm worried less about people kicking out than sort of being an hour in and saying, okay, I'm on to my next place. Because it will disrupt the group process. 
as well as leave them with a false idea of what it is. So I think we can just be very upfront and just say, you know, if you're signing up to come, you're you're signing up to be there the whole time. Mm-hmm. Now I actually tried to get National Scuba National Association's commitment to do this, where we would model a half-day community meeting with administrators trying to deal with social media, for example. And that you would get in front of that and have the parents come in because your your rules you put on filtering are really representative of community values and in lots of places fear tactics. So, but we can never do that because I said, and they can use this process for anything. So what I'd like to do is to have the process be whatever we decided to be, but the structure of it would be the same whatever the topic is, gathering people together and going through these steps and then closing with action commitments. Oh, Jackie. <laughs> <laughs> so you know what I could also do is I can introduce you to Vicki Abelles, uh, the director of uh, Race to Nowhere. And uh, it, it might be kind of interesting to, to, to see if she would be open to an idea, you know, the, this idea of actually kind of facilitating. I know they do some things already as a part of their discussion process, but they may have identified some, you know, some, some school organizations who've said, we want more. Okay, I would love to visit with her, and they may find other people. I don't have to be involved in being the person who gets hired or anything. I mean, I've got plenty of work sitting at my table, but I would love for her to think about this as a power strategy that they really help people get follow-up. Because I've met so many parents who were frustrated afterwards that they just didn't feel like they were part of any solutions. So Steve, if you were able to activate that, because I think that's a video that's going to pick up a lot of speed, and be a power influencer. And I think more so than Superman. I don't know why, but I just feel like it is um, something to really talk about. But that would be a powerful thing to do, is to sort of leave the thought with them that they could make more happen with their video if communities had a way to sort of meet and say, and so what will we start doing to make less of this be true in our lives? Thank you, Debbie. Yeah, I, I know she has some kind of a program already, but I don't think it's nearly as extensive as a future search. So uh, I, what I'll probably do is just make an introduction and okay. allow her to decide if she wants to guide the conversation. But I agree, and okay. I think she's actually working on another movie now. And, okay. and I think from, from the larger perspective, I just think people are hungry for this conversation. And so it's sort of looking for a, an easy way to introduce them to um, to taking that next step. So you know, if there are communities around the country who are saying this is something we want to talk about, having having there be an easy way either to know how to get to you or to get to someone who's prepared and willing to to hold mm -hmm. such an event. Well, there are days when I get sad and world weary, <laughs> and I think I'm going to be dust before anything changes. But, but then I get up in the morning and I say, I just have to add my drop today. But we really have an opportunity to be a crossover generation here. And is it hard work? Yes. But when I meet people like you and Sylvia and a lot of the people in the room, I'm thinking, okay, I can get up the next day and do a little more. So. Steve, feel free to call on me, and um, you know if we can plot and plan for more to happen for kids, that's personal joy. I agree, and and I, I somehow I didn't do a good job at the very beginning of the interview, kind of communicating this, but I still have this sort of deep question of 
if this if this didn't become the main narrative in business, and certainly future searches, and even total quality, as Deming described total quality, it never became the main narrative for businesses. It's not the main narrative for businesses. There's something about deep thought that, that never sort of becomes the scaled story. And it's very hard for deep thought to become the scaled story, at least in my yeah. perspective. So uh, you know, I think in some ways it, 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 there may be some health healthiness in looking at this as a very good, valid secondary culture of, of thinking about schooling. Because the moment you say our success is only if we become the main story, I'm not sure that's actually going to happen. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's a hmm of, I'm not sure I agree. So we'll, no, we'll let I it go No, I want to think about it. And, and I say that because like some of the training I got in my OD work was to go in and interview in businesses. And when we got done, we were to talk about what, what are the stories in this culture and are the stories clashing? Are they operating from different places? I think what we don't want to say is that there isn't anything that's a cure-all. This is a complex system. And a future search is just one tool to begin the momentum of many things that have to happen. So it's not an activity. Um, but, but I do know that everybody tells a story in business. Narrative intelligence is, is primary in a business. What business are we in? And Jackie wants to speak someplace, so I'd love to hear from her. Oh, I thought you clicked that. So I think it's about not trying to look for a silver bullet, Steve. And saying, but I do know that when you gather people in the room and you say, we really, we have issues sitting here, and how are we going to get from here to here? I really believe in people, and I guess that's why this this particular strategy touches me. And I, um, Denver Public Schools said out of all the planning they've ever done, in all the years they planned, this process was the one that gave them the most momentum. And if you go Is out that to documented Lee, anywhere, uh, there. Their meetings and their scenarios, or that statement I just made. I guess both. Is there a good kind of visible white paper or video that says this is what Denver Public Schools did, and this is why it was no. so powerful? And I tried to get a camera crew into the Illinois ones because we had so we had one guy who, because they were supposed to advertise their community meetings in the local paper as one of the rules. And we had one school that had somebody who was living out of town, never been back to his hometown, that actually left a stock portfolio to the school and says, I want to be part of the dream. I couldn't come to the meeting, but I want to be part of important things happening to my kids in the town. Now, that stock portfolio probably isn't worth anything today, but the school was just flabbergasted. They never had anybody leave a portfolio to a public school before, but all the money was supposed to be diverted towards technology. And we just had story after story like that happen, where magic happened. And so Bernadine, we never captured oh, them, Steve. Well, we never captured them. And I, was, I, I tried. I worked hard. We tried to get it there. We just didn't get it done. Could we bring anybody who participated into another session like this? Could we, could we capture it in an hour? Hmm. Good question. Let me put my noodle to that and see. If we, I, because I, I think you're right. We need people who have had these experiences be able to talk about them. So let me put some thought to that and see if I can't find that couple of people. That would be there really fun Jackie. to just do a, a session. Documenting the ISTE gathering. 
that's not a bad idea. The other thing that I'm very curious about is a whole narrative piece. And for me, that you know, part of part of what we're talking about here is envisioning a process in education that's not unlike the process of democracy in local communities. When we think about democracy, we don't think about specific practices as much as we think about the dialogue that gets us there, the voting, the process of engagement. When we think of education, we think of outcome and output rather than the process. So I'm kind of curious in this whole narrative piece, how do we redefine our, ex our, our narrative around education so that it's more around process rather than outcome? Wow, if you figure that out, you're going to be a rich man. <laughs> um, I don't want to be rich. I want to make a difference. Well, I find that to be rich. I don't mean in dollars, but like, wow. Um, I, think, I think you've actually just identified some little core piece here uh, about process. Um, and I think when you look at the 21st century skills, you actually see some contrariness, because lots of that is about thinking processes and communication processes. And how do we get that to have the respect of getting our business done? But you see, if you're an industrial model, you don't need processes. Everybody's supposed to stand where they do and do their little jigsaw work. So um, it really is about finding a place where this becomes kind of a way of doing business. Even things like fine-tuning protocol, which is teachers in reflective mode around their work. We had a powerful experience in Saskatoon. And they were all nervous and anxious. And when we got done, there was just this glow in the room. And when do we get together again? And you know, but they've not ever had quite that experience. And now they have to go back to their buildings and find time. So I so maybe think so maybe you maybe you could bring guests from different places. Okay. And you, if you can't get Denver, maybe you get someone from Saskatoon, someone from Denver, and just sort of say we want to kind of capture what this does. I've got some people to tap into. I just have to think about it. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm sure that you didn't plan on 20 extra minutes, but I sure appreciate it. And I will uh, start an email thread with you about Saturday at ISTE and make sure it's still going to work for you. But if it does, then we I think we should go ahead and plan it, and uh, we'll get a lot of support. And we'll have you know the EduBloggerCon community to draw from for people who would want to participate. I'd love to do that. And, and I think I'm always up for saying, how do we combine our forces to bring important things forward? And I just thank you for having me here tonight. I have to say, I know we're off recording, but I was really proud to be part of this. And you always look at what, can you, what trouble can you make in one hour? And I think you've shown me it's entirely possible <laughs> to start something. So thank you. Well, so we are still on recording. I never turned it off. So oh, <laughs> it's okay. still there. Well, take um, out all my other, blankety blanks. <laughs> No, no, no. But the other interesting piece here, and I'll just throw it out, which is, you know, Ken Robinson's actually going to come on the show again. When Ken was on before, we had 525 oh, people. Love that guy. Um, when, when we talk about Web 2.0 tools, or we talk about things that don't go this deep, we typically have a larger audience. So I recognize that there's sort of a core group who are willing to kind of go to this level and think about it. But there is that core group. And it's, it's going to be fun. To, if you are able to come back and to bring some other people on, and we can follow this, this thread, I think there is a good core group of people who will jump on board. OK. And you know, interesting enough, years ago at tech conferences, I used, I used to actually do half-day workshops on holding effective meetings and engaging group, groups 
uh, I used to do lots of this kind of work, like at uh, uh, METC and other places. But then all of a sudden, it became more about the stuff. So I think maybe our people who have reached the trailblazer group and trying to look past the next group are sort of saying, what more tools can we put in our toolboxes? And uh, it requires process tools, quite frankly. And can I tell you a last story? And I know I'm going over time, but there's a story about the Dogon tribe in Africa. And uh, because storytelling is usually thought of as a language arts skill or what you do in elementary grades. But every night they gathered from age 5 to 95, and they would practice their storytelling. And in working with that, what they would say is, tell a story in which you imagine, and tell a story that's real. And then the rest of us will tell you which one is which and why we thought this was real and this was imagined. And they would just do this every night, rounds and rounds of storytelling. But what the Dogon tribe is really known for far and wide is problem solving. Because when they're brought into a place where there's a problem, they tell stories so powerful as to be imagined possible and real. And through the art of their storytelling, they're able to get people to move to new places. So I think we way underestimate storytelling. And I know people think of me as a digital storyteller like it was a new cool thing I got involved in. But storytelling has always been at the heart of my whole life. What stories are you telling? What stories do you want to live in? And be part of making new stories if you don't like where you're standing. So to me, storytelling has got one powerful thing to add to. Um, to what's possible for schools if we tap into it. So I think thank that's you for so this important. So important. Yes. Thank yeah. you, Bernard Jean. Thank you, Bernard Jean. Can't wait to talk again. Okay, bye. Okay. <laughs> Good night everybody. I am Good gonna night. turn the recording off now.